Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Australia, Israel, Hungary, Brazil, the United States, and a see you in hell that's the celebration of a dead right ringer from Japan. Starting out in Australia, a regional premier, uh, essentially the a governor, he is the regional premier of New South Wales. His name is Dominic Perrottet. Well, it's turned out that when he was 21, on his birthday, he dressed up as a Nazi. And this has led to a big old scandal because the picture has recently been released. He was 21 over 20 years ago, so this was quite a long time ago. However, you know, this isn't exactly the kind of thing that people like let slide. You know, he dressed as a Nazi and I guess thought it was funny on his birthday. However, his party is sticking by him. Moving on to Israel, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is defeated by the Israeli Supreme Court. Specifically, they have struck down one of his cabinet appointees. In Israel, the Supreme Court has some say over the prime minister's makeup of the cabinet. Specifically, they've struck down the appointee Arya Deri, who is the leader of an ultra-Orthodox party that is part of Mr. Netanyahu's political coalition. This is part of a longer, ongoing battle between Netanyahu and the Supreme Court, and also just the Israeli right wing and the Supreme Court in general. Specifically, Netanyahu is trying to limit the kind of power that the Supreme Court just wielded by preventing the appointment of Derry to this office. We will only see how this fight plays out as Netanyahu continues to combat the Supreme Court and its ability to perform this kind of oversight. Moving on to Hungary. Hungary, which, as you should remember, is run by Viktor Orban's extreme right-wing party, continues to work with Russia against the European Union. Now, Hungary is in the European Union, but Orban himself is much of a Putin ally and is really aligned with neighboring Belarus and Russia as opposed to the European Union. Specifically, recently, Orban's party held a plebiscite, a, you know, an election, a poll within Hungary about whether or not they should support the European Union's blockade of certain Russian assets, their boycott of Russian financial and resource assets, specifically regarding Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, Orban is saying that he doesn't care about any of this election stuff and that like the people of Hungary don't want to support this boycott. This is because he is an ally of authoritarians and right-wingers everywhere. This is something that we saw pretty extensively when it came to the presidency of Donald Trump and the presidency of Jair Bolsonaro, two erstwhile allies of Orban who have recently lost their positions, right? And speaking of Bolsonaro, in Brazil, the news is that there are ongoing investigations and actions regarding the January 8th attempted coup in that country. There are a lot of ins and a lot of outs in this situation. It's relatively complicated. Partly that's because of the role of a person who I've mentioned previously on this podcast. He is a member of the Brazilian Electoral Tribunal and a member of the equivalent of the Brazilian, you know, the, the equivalent of the Supreme Court. His name is Alexandre de Moraes, and he is courting controversy because he's been acting pretty independently. He's removed the governor of Brasilia for his supposed role in aiding and abetting the January 8th attempted coup. That is when, remember, a large group of Bolsonaro supporters were bussed in from around the country and they stormed the office buildings 
of the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of Brazil, which in Brazil are essentially right next to each other. They're, they're, they're all surrounding a plaza that's called the Plaza of the Three Powers, the Plaza of the Three Branches, depending on how you translate it. So Jimorais has gotten a lot of controversy because of his zeal in prosecuting these people. Some people think that this is a partisan attack against Bolsonaro and the right wing in Brazil. The supporters of Jimorais and Jimorais himself say that they're just following the rules and like, hey, if you're working with somebody who is a golpista, like somebody who is actually trying to promote the end of representative democracy, then yeah, you're going to get got. Like there's going to be legal action against you. And on the note of that legal action, federal police in Brazil, in their search of the home of Anderson Torres, the former justice minister for Bolsonaro and recently ousted security chief in Brasilia, ousted by Gimorais because of his apparent involvement in at least abetting the January 8th coup, you know, by having local security stand down and making it possible for the protesters to enter the building. Federal police, when searching Anderson Torres's house, found a memo. They found a memo. This memo was from the era when Torres worked for Bolsonaro when he was the justice minister. And the memo was a proposal to annul the results of the October 31st election, which lost Bolsonaro the presidency and ushered in the current presidency of Lula, the current president of Brazil. Now, this was a draft. This was not used. It was never officially introduced by the Bolsonaro presidency. But the fact that it physically existed means that somebody, presumably Torres or a staffer working for him, was planning on introducing this to Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro might have seen this. It means that the Bolsonaro presidency was earnestly considering just saying, you know, fuck it, we're not going to have the election have taken place. We're, we're just going to ignore it. We're, we're actually going to claim that we won and hold on to power. That was a seriously, an apparently considered possibility. This evidence is now being introduced in various criminal cases that are affecting Torres and also potentially Bolsonaro himself. Although all of that is an ongoing, developing situation. So you're going to have to stay tuned to see how that plays out. Currently, the president of Brazil, Lula da Silva, has fired 40 military officers from the defense staff at the executive building specifically firing them for disloyalty, again, because of their apparent involvement in, or at least suspected involvement in, or support of, the January 8th invasion of that building. And because of all of these investigations and controversies surrounding the January 8th invasion, Jair Bolsonaro, who is currently absconded in the United States, seems to be content to stay in the United States for quite some time. He's been going back and forth about whether he's going to go back to Brazil now or later. It seems like he's probably going to be staying in the United States for maybe a while, because he's trying to avoid prosecution. Moving on to news about the United States, the House Oversight Committee has had its new membership described. It has, its new membership has been released. This committee is an extremely important one in the United States. It's a government watchdog organization, an investigation committee. For example, it was used extensively by the Republicans in the 1990s to issue hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of subpoenas against the Clinton administration as part of their intensified partisan warfare under the new Republican leadership of the House of Representatives. Now, in 2023, the House Oversight Committee is run by the Republicans again. And who is on it but Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Laura Barbert, and Scott Perry, 
these are all extreme mega Republicans, like hyper nationalist, crazy Trump people, actual conspiracy theorists, the kind of people who say, put Biden in jail, and they don't mean it like as a rhetorical device. They literally mean, I want the United States government to prosecute Joe Biden and that I want him to be in prison. This means that the Republicans are setting up this committee to be used as a GOP device to quote-unquote investigate Joe Biden, his presidency, and anybody associated with him. So prepare for two years of that. And anytime that anybody says, like, you're being ridiculous, this is just obstructionist, this is terrible, this is awful, you're tearing down the edifice of normal democracy, they'll say, well, but you guys did it with the January 6th Special Select Committee. And they'll say that this is the Democrats getting comeuppance for their actions. This is, of course, ridiculous. Instead, this is a group of people who supported an attempted coup using the levers of government in order to punish the parts of the United States political world that is the Democratic Party that were trying to investigate that coup. This is pretty terrifying stuff. Finally, a smaller but in some senses scarier story. A failed Republican candidate for New Mexico state office has actually been shooting up Democratic officials' homes. He has been, like, shooting them with guns. The guy's name is Solomon Pena. Uh, at least that's how it appears in the news. If it is, in fact, Pena, please correct me. Pena ran for state office in Albuquerque but failed in 2022. The SWAT team arrested him on Monday on suspicion of his involvement in these attacks on the homes of Democratic office holders in Albuquerque. After his loss in 2022, Pena claimed that the election was stolen or rigged, and he vowed to do something about it. He is accused of paying four armed men to shoot at the homes of county commissioners and also Democratic state legislators from December of 2022 into January of 2023. The Albuquerque police also alleged that he was probably physically there for at least one of the shootings, which means that it's entirely possible that he actually did some of the shooting himself. Further investigations into his social media and his other statements imply that it's also possible that he was actually in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, which would be quite a development in this particular person's life. Now, Having been arrested, this person is now a poster child for the new brand of Republican candidates. Like, remember, this person won a primary to represent the Republican Party in the state legislature of New Mexico State. Like, like this isn't just some fringe guy. He's the party. He's in the party. And he has now paid mercenaries to shoot at the homes of his political opponents. Fortunately, nobody has been injured or hurt, at least not physically, by these attacks. But this is just something that I guess we're going to have to be used to, at least for the foreseeable future, because that's that's just the situation in the United States right now. This is the nature of political violence in this country. I'm finally going to close out this week, like I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I am talking about a man named Kodama Yoshio. Uh, remember that he is Japanese, and so that means that Kodama is his surname. Kodama was a Japanese ultranationalist, a fascist, or at least fascophilic person, and a crime boss. He was born in 1911 in Fukushima, and his family was actually pretty downwardly mobile at the time. His father was a failed businessman, so he spent a lot of his youth working. 
After he grew up, he joined a lot of right-wing groups. You know, he is precisely the kind of person who is the ideal candidate for right-wing recruitment, you know, a downwardly mobile young man. So he joined a lot of ultra-nationalist groups and patriotic groups. He wrote appeals for patriotic nationalistic Japanese identity and also worked with some sort of para-fascist or proto-fascist organizations. He was especially interested in and became especially involved in groups that attempted to link the Japanese criminal underworld, which always had relatively right-wing and conservative leanings, with the extreme right-wing, you know, a la the growing fascist movements that were active in and around the world. Kodama was in and out of prison throughout the late 20s and 30s for propaganda distribution and also for the attempted assassination of a Japanese prime minister. However, when war broke out between the Empire of Japan and China in 1937, he worked for the Japanese military intelligence branch during the war as a spy in China due to his travels on the mainland continent of Asia when he was an impoverished young man. By the end of the war, he had risen to the rank of rear admiral because it turned out that he was a very good spy and particularly good at smuggling. That was a lot of what he did. He was arrested by the United States after the Japanese surrender to the United States as a war criminal, specifically for his actions in China. However, he and other people like him were then recruited by the United States military intelligence to act as an anti-communist operative in Japan after the war. Remember that one of the major justifications for the United States' use of nuclear bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki was to circumvent the Soviet Union's invasion of the northern part of Japan in order to prevent the split of Japan a la the East-West Germany split that was happening in Europe. So people like Kodama were important for the United States. They wanted these kinds of operatives to be present in Japan and functioning in the interests of international capitalism. And that's exactly what Kodama did for the rest of his life. He became an anti-communist and anti-labor political fixer. That is, he would do the dirty work for conservative leaders and for business leaders in Japan while also continuing his work trying to connect extreme right-wing groups and organized crime. He had some success on this front, but ultimately his efforts were a failure as there was no successful, large-scale, long-lasting umbrella organization linking the major criminal organizations in Japan, and their relationship with the right-wing, while still powerful, was never powerful enough to like really contest state power or take anything over as had always been his dream. However, despite his involvement in countless scandals and illegal activities and also his obvious connections to the criminal underground, Kodama was never arrested again and never went to prison again after the 1940s because he was protected by these crime bosses and politicians. And so, Kodama Yoshio died peacefully in his sleep of a stroke in Tokyo, the 17th of January, 1984. So, Kodama Yoshio, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. You can check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism, spelled out in all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail. I'm at 15 Minutes of Fascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right and fascism 15. All right, thanks very much, and I'll talk to you next week.